All right, my brothers, open your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 18 through chapter 16 and verse 4 is our text for this morning. I've titled our message, Jesus, Our Wonderful Counselor. And I wanted to ask you a question right off the bat. When you think about wise counselors, what comes to your mind? What kind of person comes to your mind when you think about wise counselors? What criteria would you, um, would you use to label someone a wise counselor? Well, ever think about that? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Maybe you think about somebody who listens well. Maybe you think about somebody who is accessible or available to you. Maybe there's a person who comes to mind who is a wise counselor in your life. Whatever you answer, I think, one of the key distinctives for me, I've always thought, of a wise counselor are some of those things that I mentioned and maybe others, but to me, a wise counselor is a person who tells you not what you want to hear, but tells you what you need to hear. Amen? Those are good counselors. People who tell you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. It's someone who's willing to give you tough love when you need it, and you're convinced that they love you, that they really care about you. It's somebody who's willing to tell you the truth in love, even if it's hard, even if it's tough at critical points in your life. I think that's a wise counselor. And if that's the case, then I can't think of a wiser, more wonderful counselor than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the wisest, most wonderful counselor that we can think of. And especially as we think about our passage this morning and what the words that he has for his disciples, he is shown to be a wise, wonderful counselor. Jesus has some tough words for his disciples in this text. If you've already read the text and you've been uh, sort of uh, getting the engine going by getting your, your questions done in preparation for your small group time leading into this, then you see that Jesus is not going to coddle his disciples here. He's not going to uh, be dishonest with them, withhold some of the truth from them. He's going to be full-blown honest with them. He is a wise counselor in that he doesn't tell his disciples what they might wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear. He's already told them that he's going to die, but now he tells them, guess what, guys? You too are going to be persecuted. You too are going to suffer. In fact, you too might be put to death as well in some of their cases, right? In persecution. So he's, he tells them essentially things are going to get from bad to worse. He's got some tough love for his disciples in our text. Now, the world may look at Jesus' approach here. And the world may say, you know what, that's mean, that's harsh, and all of that. But this is Jesus modeling for us in this text, for his disciples whom he loves, truth spoken to them with grace and in love, right? And that's so different than our world, especially even in the church. When you think about movements like the prosperity gospel, for instance, right? The whole wealth, health, and prosperity gospel, which basically tells people if you follow Jesus, guess what? There's no suffering. Everything's going to be given to you as you want it, as you define it. He's going to bless you, right? There are movements like that even in the church, in evangelicalism, broadly speaking, where people don't tell others the whole truth, where they tell people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. That's very much the opposite of Jesus' approach here in showing, uh, speaking the truth in love to his disciples. He tells them about the reality of suffering. And that is very consistent with other scriptures that tell us that followers of Jesus will be persecuted. 
Right? Take, for instance, Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, where there he's writing to these Philippian believers. Paul is incarcerated. He's on house arrest when he writes. And he says to the Philippians in Philippians 1.29, For to you, Philippians, it has been granted, and the word granted there is the word charis, from which we get grace. Paul says, let me tell you about a special grace that God has extended to you, Philippians, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that's salvation, but also suffer for his sake. He says, here's a gift that God has given to you, not only to believe in him, but he's also, uh, said, uh, he's also giving you suffering for the sake of the gospel. That is a gift of God. And then he says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Paul says, I've experienced suffering. I'm being incarcerated for the sake of the gospel. Guess what? Join the crowd, Philippian believers. It's a gift, not only to believe, but also to suffer for the sake of Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul says to young Timothy, Indeed, Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, ready? Will be what? Persecuted. Will be persecuted. He says to Timothy, expect it, Timothy, expect it. And that is, that should be the expectation of the Christian life, that we are going to be people who are going to be opposed. Very consistent with what Jesus says here as well. He's preparing them for his death. And the whole focus of his words is, you're going to be hated. There are going to be people who are going to treat you with hostility here in the world, here on earth, as you accomplish your mission. So he's got some tough love to extend to them here. And so what does he counsel them as their good shepherd? How does he counsel them as their wonderful counselor? Well, first of all, write this down. He tells them that they are to embrace that opposition. They are to embrace opposition. Not only expected, but fully welcome it into their lives as followers of his. Now, he doesn't leave these things ambiguous. If they're going to embrace opposition, they need to be reminded of the reasons why the world is hostile. So write this down as your first subpoint as well. Reason number one, the world is hostile because the world has a Jesus problem. The world has a Jesus problem. Look at verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated who? Me, Jesus, before it hated you. He says, hey guys, it's not ultimately personal against you, though it might feel personal as you're bulldozed over in the Christian life by those who oppose the gospel, but it's ultimately that they hate me. That's the problem that the world has. They hate me, Jesus, your Lord. Boy, isn't that a fact? I mean, by the time that you get to the book of Acts and the book of Acts opens, the disciples are fulfilling their mission and they face hostility for the sake of the name for the sake of the name of Christ, in Acts chapter 4, verse 17, the Jewish authorities decide to threaten them to stop preaching in this name. Whose name is that? It's the name of Jesus. Right off the bat, from the very beginning, the church experiences pushback and opposition, and they're beginning to experience hostility for the sake of the name of Christ, right? Because they have a Jesus problem. They hate Jesus. And since that time, even since the early church, the name of Jesus always evokes a strong reaction from people, doesn't it? I mean, think about the, just think about the cuss language in many of the movies that Hollywood puts out. So oftentimes in, the, in those movies, right, it's like intentionally, 
The scriptwriter basically uses the name of Jesus in vain. Jesus Christ is used as a bad word. People are hostile to the name of Christ, even intentionally putting his name in there and using it in vain because they hate Christ, right? They don't honor and revere his name. And you walk onto any college somewhere, any university, brothers, and you begin to ask people who they think Jesus is. Just the name Jesus already evokes various emotional responses, doesn't it? Like in our case, my wife and I, when we would walk on these universities in the past, and I remember people saying, well, it depends on what Jesus you're talking about, right? Is it the, is it the Jesus that, who, who loves me and who accepts me for who I am? Or is it the hateful Jesus who tells me to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow after me, after him? Which Jesus are you talking about? Right away, they took things personally. See, right away, hatred and hostility is evoked by the name of Jesus. And listen, we shouldn't be shocked about that. It shouldn't surprise us. We should embrace that reality. And Jesus says here, in case you think you're going to be off the hook, think again. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. My choosing of you is the reason why the world hates you. Because of me. Jesus is not of the world, therefore he's hated. And his followers are not of the world, therefore they're going to be hated. Jesus says, in your association with me, in your identification with me, you will be hated and people will treat you with hostility. Now he has said this to them before. Look at verse 20. Remember, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. That's not new information right there. Back in John chapter 13 and verse 16, Jesus said, truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. What's the point? If they persecuted me, verse 20, who are your master, they will persecute you who are my servants. So you decide to follow me as your master, says Jesus. You need to expect and embrace the opposition that is coming your way. That word there, by the way, persecuted or persecution in verse 20, is the, the Greek word dioko, which basically means to, to pursue, to harass, specifically someone in, the, in this context because of their belief and their faith in Jesus. That's the idea. He says, expect it. Conversely, he says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Why? Because you represent me. And if you speak on my behalf and they embrace you, then they've embraced me because we are on the same team. But do you see what Jesus is getting at here? Why would you expect special treatment follower of, Jesus, of Christ? Some of, some of us maybe subtly have kind of operate like that, right? Like we, we get surprised when people oppose us. We get shocked. It's like, oh, audacious. How could they respond that way toward me? In my work environment, in my neighborhood, right? They see stickers of Compass Bible Church on your car. And they give you a weird look or an indif treat you with indifference and they avoid you. It's like... Look at that, audacious. Brothers, that's the world's hostility against you. They have a Jesus problem. And they associate you with Jesus. And that is why they respond that way ultimately when you dig deeper. Peter eventually got this. Look with me, if you will. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I want us to look at this. This is a key passage. As we understand that we need to embrace suffering, especially the way that our world is getting. 
And so some of the things that we see, we need to embrace suffering. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he's writing to Christians who are beginning to suffer persecution. And he says, Beloved, First Peter 4, 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice, verse 13, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's part of the deal, he says. You want to be, live with a greater sense of anticipation for the, for the glorious Christ, to see him and to embrace him all the more and cherish and treasure him when he comes. God is using suffering to test you and to draw out that anticipation and expectation of the glory of Jesus. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. <laughs> what? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He says you're in a privileged position. You have privileged status if the world hates you because of the name of Christ. You're blessed. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed or happy are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now here's the caveat, verse 15. But, contrast, let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. That's not persecution. Those who would suffer for the sake of their sin, right, even believers, those are consequences being brought about by your sin. That ain't true persecution. That is a biblical, Christ-exalting kind of persecution. Those are the consequences of your own sin. Verse 16, yet... If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of, of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, here it is, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. See that? Even while we may not understand the opposition that is against us, even when we might have questions about it, why God is allowing it, even in moments when we're confused about what is happening, we can entrust ourselves to a sovereign, good, all-wise God, brothers, who will bring us to the other side beyond that persecution so that we might trust him and that we might grow stronger in our faith. And not only trust him, but even learn to rejoice in suffering. Like those in Acts chapter 5 verse 41, where it says there in Acts 5 41 that after they were beaten for preaching, these followers of Jesus, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Jesus, for the name of Christianity, because they were Christians, little Christ followers. They rejoiced in that. Listen, that kind of joyful response is impossible if we are not expecting opposition and even beyond that, embracing it as part and parcel of what it means to be a, a follower of Christ. We need to embrace it, knowing that it will come because the world has a Jesus problem. But here's reason number two. We should embrace opposition knowing that the world is hostile because they have a God problem. Because they have a God problem. That's in verse 21. But all these things, verse 21, they will do to you on account of my name. And here's why they're going to do these things. Because they do not know him who sent me. Who is the him there? God the Father. They do this because they don't know God the Father. 
This statement ties in to the theme in John's gospel that Jesus proceeds forth from the Father, originates from the Father, was sent by the Father, and that God the Father thus is the greatest witness to Jesus' identity as his Son, as the Son of God, as God of very God. Jesus says, you know why they're hostile? Because they have a God problem. They don't understand who God really is, and they don't know him intimately. They don't have a vital relationship with him because if they did, if they were worshiping the one true God, then they would believe in the testimony of God the Father concerning who I am. Isn't that the whole point of the Gospel of John? God the Father is my greatest witness, and they don't believe in Jesus. Therefore, they reject the Father's testimony. Back in John chapter 12 and verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him, God the Father, who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him, God the Father, who sent me. In other words, if you truly believe and see me as, the, as, the, as God, for who I say I am, then, and you take me at my word, then you are believing my Father. Because we are, our wills are consistent. We have the same will. And by the way, it's the same thing today, isn't it? Have times changed? Today there are a lot of people who say, hey, get off my back. And I believe in God, get off my back. But then when you push them on which God with a little g they're talking about, it becomes evident that they're not speaking about the one true God of the Bible. If they were referring to the God of the Bible, who would they believe in? Jesus, right? His son, whom he sent into the world. Because the Bible says that Jesus is the supreme manifestation of the glory of God. That, that Jesus has revealed the one true God to us and what he is like. John chapter 1 verse 14. No one has ever seen God. The only God, speaking of Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made him, God the Father, known. In other words, Jesus has shown us who God is. He has exegeted God for us. That's the idea there. He has uh, disclosed God to us. Look with me and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a noteworthy passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. One of the most beautiful passages on this. On how Jesus supremely reveals who God is. And if you're going to say you believe in the one true God, you must embrace Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing Verse 4, in their case, in the case of the non-believing world, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, he says. That's the Greek word icon, translated there, image. He is the exact image, the exact replica of God. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, listen to this, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, ready for this, in the face of Jesus Christ. See that? You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. The greatest expression, brothers, of the, of the glory and the majesty of God that we can behold is in the person and the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And thus, any person who claims to believe in, in God, right, must embrace Jesus. Otherwise, we're not talking about the same God. We're talking about some foreign God or a God of your own creation, but not the God of the Bible. And so you can't say, I believe in God and reject Jesus, his, his son, as the people of Jesus' as they did, the religious leaders included. We believe in God, we're zealous for God, but you reject his revelation. You reject his son. You, you reject the Messiah. Thus, your zeal is, is, is uh, misdirected. It's short-sighted. No, if you believe in God, you must repent and believe in his only begotten son and embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But the Jews of Jesus' day, you see, didn't embrace Jesus' claims or his sacrifice. They rejected Jesus, and in so doing, they showed that they had a fundamental God problem. For God the Father, at this stage of redemptive history, listen to me, at this stage of redemptive history, God the Father is glorified when his Son is exalted in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a Trinitarian view of redemption in the church age. God the Father is glorified when his son is exalted, made much of in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners, and in the hearts of those who are being sanctified. When we exalt the son, we glorify the father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's what life is about for us as believers. Reason number three. The world is hostile because they have a Jesus problem. They have a God problem. The world is hostile because they have a sin problem. They have a sin problem. Look at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have, have been guilty of sin. Underline that. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done anything among them, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. The Lord Jesus keeps bringing up this issue of their problem. And their problem is their sin in their day and age, seen in their rejection of their Messiah. He's taught them, performed mighty deeds, showing his identity. He says, they have no excuse. They are culpable. They are guilty of sin. The issue is not that they don't have enough proof. The issue is that they have sin because they have rejected me. They have a sin problem, not a proof problem. That's why they're hostile, because they are sinners, he says. Now, it's not as if this hostility surprises him. Look at verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. He says, no. The Old Testament, right? David, Psalm 69 verse 4, speaks of hatred in his direction for no reason. That was ultimately a messianic psalm, says Jesus. Ultimately appointed to, to me as the ultimate fulfillment of this. I anticipated that this rejection would happen. I embrace it, Jesus says. It's in accordance to the fulfillment of Holy Scripture, Psalm 69 and verse 4, pointing ultimately to the Messiah, and here I am. But in essence, what he says here is the world is hostile because of their sin. That's so evident in our world, isn't it? We live in a depraved, wicked world, brothers. And that would include America, the country that we love. America is experiencing really the present wrath of God. That's what's wrong with America. Romans chapter 1, we're seeing it before our very eyes. The world is depraved. Our country is full of depraved people. And we'd be there too if it wasn't for the grace of God, of course. Did you hear the other day the news from the House of Representatives? That 47 House, ready for this? 47 House Republicans, 
voted the other day essentially for same-sex marriage. That's a major shift in the last 25 years, two plus decades. Unbelievable. But that's a reminder for us too that republicanism isn't equated to be equated with biblical Christianity. Amen? I hope that all of us are on the same page. Whether we vote Republican or not. That republicanism isn't equated with biblical Christianity. People say, oh man, you know, and the, the Bible Belt is disappearing. Oh no. I say, oh yes. Because there are a lot of people in the Bible Belt who are not genuine from the heart followers of Jesus. They equate moralism with Christianity. And moralism isn't the gospel either. Or biblical Christianity. Right? The greatest moralists, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were the ones that Jesus had the harshest words against because they rejected their Messiah. They trusted in their own self-righteousness. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, that was me too. But now, whatever, was, whatever I could claim as, as great credentials before the Lord, I count those things as rubbish because of the alien righteousness of Jesus now attributed and imputed to my account. See? But that's the kind of society we live in. There's a major shift. The world is depraved. And people were so shocked and outraged when they heard the whole deal about 47 House Republicans voting the other day essentially for same-sex marriage. Man, outrage, shock. Even some believers on social media, how could this be? Let me tell you, look at your Bible. We have a sin problem in our country, don't we? That's why. Nobody should be shocked. Now listen, on the one hand, we should never say, well, it is what it is. We should just accept it. No, we should never allow ourselves to just accept and be okay with this kind of depravity. Shouldn't do that. On the other hand, none of this should be a surprise. This is yet another example there of the expected opposition that we should not only expect but embrace as followers of Jesus. The world, brothers, has a sin problem. It's called human depravity. And human depravity does not mean that every single person is as bad as they can be, but that every aspect of their being is sinful and depraved. And every single person, apart from Jesus, is capable of performing any and all manner of wickedness under the sun. That's what human depravity means. Any of us are capable of performing the worst of sins if it isn't for the hand of God in our lives. That's the doctrine of human depravity. So none of this should surprise us. It should catapult us all the more with a heart of compassion and zeal for evangelistic witness, all the more to share the solution to the problem of sin, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what we need to be about, telling people of the solution to the problem of their sin, who is Christ, his person, and his work, that they would transfer trust from self to the Lord Jesus Christ and come to know him as Lord and Savior, repent and believing in Christ. Now, not only should we embrace opposition, but I want you to write this down. We should also, secondly, engage the opposition. We should engage the opposition. Whoa, Pastor Kempis, now you're getting really radical here. Isn't that for like committed believers? No. Listen to me. There is no such thing as a category of radical Christians and so-so Christians. Right? Every single one of us are here on this earth to engage our world with the truth. Amen? Now, how we do that is important too. We don't fight fire with fire or hatred with hatred or hostility with hostility. But God does want us to engage people with the truth and love. And so as we do this, write this down. We need to go remembering a few things. First, we should go boldly and engage knowing that we're not alone. 
Brother, go boldly and fulfill your mission knowing that you're not alone. Look at verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, who is he? He's the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. See that? Jesus says, hey guys, it's not even you who will be the primary witness. It will be the Holy Spirit working through you. The helper, the parakletos, the comforter, the encourager, the exhorter. The one who teaches you the things that I have taught you and bring to your remembrance what I have taught you. Notice that he calls him the spirit of, of truth. Truth as opposed to falsehood. Truth as opposed to deception. Truth in the sense that he teaches you about reality and the way things really are in this world of delusion and deceit so that you might have eyes to see the spirit of truth is the Holy Spirit. And what primary truth has the spirit come to bring to light? Well, the truth about the Lord Jesus. Showing us Christ is the primary reason why the Holy Spirit was sent into this world. Jesus says this essentially in John chapter 14 and verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance, ready for this, all that I have said to you, Jesus says. He's going to point to me and to my words. That is his mission here in this world. And in John chapter 15 and verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, hears from who? Hears from Jesus. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me, says Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. See that? The central mission of the Holy Spirit is not to bring attention to himself, per some of our more extreme charismatic friends would, would emphasize. Emphasis on the signs of the Spirit. And I represent the Spirit of God and the signs of the Spirit. No, the central mission of the Holy Spirit is not to bring attention to himself or his works. It is to bring attention to Jesus, to exalt the Son and to make much of the Son to the glory of the Father. It's to bring attention to the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, brothers, we can engage the world boldly knowing that none of us are more zealous about bringing glory to Jesus than the Holy Spirit. That's why he came to exalt the Son in and through us. This is why, as you read the book of Acts, you begin to see the boldness of the followers of Christ, right? It's precisely because the Holy Spirit arrived that Peter, in Acts chapter 2, went from denial Peter to bold and courageous Peter, who preached about Jesus. So that in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, in response to his sermon... People, it says, that they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They were pierced in their soul and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says to them in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Boy, same Peter, same fickle Peter, same rebel crowd who rejected Jesus, what in the world happened? I'll tell you, the Holy Spirit happened. Empowering them to go boldly to proclaim the message of, of Christ. Peter knew he was not alone. So there was boldness and courage 
that the Spirit of God gave him. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it's precisely because the Holy Spirit arrived that the apostles displayed such boldness after being threatened not to preach there anymore. It says in Acts 4.31 that they prayed. These followers of Jesus prayed. And the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And listen to this. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. With what result? It says that they continued to speak. Having been filled with the Spirit, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What happened? The Holy Spirit was, was what happened. He re-energized them. He granted them supernatural wits to make a bold stand for Jesus. That's what happened. Same thing in Acts 5.29. And he stood before the wicked Jewish Sanhedrin, having been told no longer to, to preach. What was their response in Acts 5? We must obey God rather than men. <laughs> what? Hello, disciples of Jesus. Do you know who you're talking to here? This is the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. I mean, these guys could, from a human perspective, wipe you out off the face of the planet. What in the world is going on here? You know what they say essentially to that? Whatevs. Whatevs. We have the Holy Spirit. They say the God of our fathers raised Jesus. Watch this. Whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. I can't get any more direct than that. They're not afraid. They're going with boldness because the Spirit is with them. God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Verse 32, and we are witnesses of, to these things. And ready for this? And so is the Holy Spirit. Uh-oh. Watch out. You don't want some of this, right? The Holy Spirit is with us whom God has given to those who obey him. Boldness. Boldness. Talk about spirit-empowered courage from on high. Who are these guys? They're the same men, flesh and blood, brothers, just like you and I. Flesh and blood, now divinely enabled and empowered, just like you and I. See, it wasn't about the men. It was about the divine person, the spirit working through them, and who was with them that mattered. Who was empowering them so that they could go boldly to fulfill their mission this is what Paul tells us at the end of Ephesians 3.20. After three chapters of expounding upon the power of God and the calling of the church, the Apostle Paul says, Ephesians 3.20, Now to him, speaking of Almighty God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. I mean, he's just piling on words there to accentuate the, the doing of God and the power of God. And then he says, according to the power at work within us. In other words, you have a measure of that same power believer to fulfill your mission. Say what? How is that possible? Through the Holy Spirit given to you. Pastor Kempis, you mean to tell me that I have at my disposal a measure of the power of God for ministry and service? Yes. Yes. You mean to tell me that I have a, a, at my disposal a measure of God's power for engaging opposition and persecution in this world and for bold witness? Yes, brother in Christ. Yes. You mean to tell me that I have at my disposal a measure of God's power so that I would be a loving husband who is sensitive and kind to my wife and serves her? Yes. That I would be a godly father who engages my children and raises them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord? I have a measure of God's power to accomplish that? Yes, brother in Christ. You mean that I have a measure of God's power to, as a single guy to be able to be content in Jesus and to find my fulfillment in him and serve him with all of my time by his grace? Yes, single brother in Christ. Yes, 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 churchman who desires to be 
a faithful servant. That's what it means. We go boldly because we know that we're not alone. We have the powerful Holy Spirit working in us. See, God hasn't only given us a mission. He's given us the equipping source, the ultimate source with a capital S, the Holy Spirit to go boldly and accomplish that mission. Amen? So let's go boldly knowing that we're not alone. We have the Holy Spirit. Here's another one. We must go resolutely knowing that we've been commissioned. Go resolutely knowing that you've been commissioned. This should go without saying that we have a job to do. In verse 26, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would bear witness about him. But now look in verse 27. And you, underline that, you, my disciples, will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In other words, now it's your turn. You've heard me, watched, witnessed, right, who I am. Now it's your turn. You've been commissioned to go boldly and testify about me. Later on, he'll reiterate this. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, he remind them of their commissioning. 40 days after his resurrection, right before his ascension to heaven, they ask him in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons or epochs that the Father has fixed by his own authorities. My translation, the timing isn't any of your business, guys. But what should you be focused on? Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, locally, in all Judea and Samaria, regionally, and to the end of the earth, globally. Boy, their commissioning couldn't be clear. Their mission couldn't be any clearer. Both for them, right? And by application for us, who are his future disciples, that we have been commissioned. And that we had to go resolutely knowing that we've been commissioned by him. Knowing that we have a job to do. Brothers, we are ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As though God were entreating through us, we should be saying, we beg you on behalf of, of, of God. Be reconciled to him. Be reconciled to him. We are ambassadors. We have the ministry of reconciliation in this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 20 and 21. That's why we're here. Can I ask you, are you resolute on this? Is that why you're here? Yeah, there are some secondary things, but they all point to the ultimate mission, don't they? That we are here to fulfill our mission. We all have our many mission fields, don't we? What is your many, many mission field for the sake of the gospel? That school, that job, that's your many mission field for the sake of the gospel. That home, that you live in, that family that the Lord has given you and entrusted you with, that stewardship that you have, that is your mini mission field. That neighborhood where God has situated you in his providence, it's not a surprise that you're in the neighborhood that you're in. God has put you there so that you might even get to know your neighbors. Do you even know your neighbors? Do you even interact with them on a regular basis? Do you seek to serve them and be salt and light in that neighborhood? That's your mini mission field for the gospel. That non-believing extended family, those non-believing friends are your mission field for the sake of the gospel. Brothers, we have been commissioned and our central preoccupation is the mission of the gospel. We have a job to do here in this world. That's why we're here. As one pastor has put it, we can worship God more supremely, more purely, more perfectly in heaven. Why are we here on earth? For the sake of making disciples. That's why we're here. To preach Christ 
to build up people in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23, I do all things, he says, for the sake of the gospel. What zeal that man had for the sake of the gospel. And earlier in that chapter, he says, woe is me if I did not preach the gospel, he says. Woe is me. I am under, I'm, I'm, I'm compelled by the grace of God in my life and his mercy shown toward me. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I'm an ambassador for Christ. Are we resolute in fulfilling our mission? Well, third and finally, we should engage the opposition and go courageously with your eyes wide open. We should go courageously with our eyes wide open. As he's interacted with his disciples in the upper room, Jesus has disclosed a lot of information to them. Why? He neither wants them surprised nor shaken by what's coming. So throughout the discourse, he's told them what is to happen so that they go into this thing with their eyes wide open. What a shepherd, what a wonderful counselor he is, isn't he? He prepares them. He reiterates here, verse 1, I have said all of these things to you concerning what's going to befall you to keep you from falling away. Scandalizo. To keep you from being scandalized. To keep you from stumbling so he again reminds them, verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Boy, that was monumental. You get put out of the synagogue as a Jew in those days. Essentially, you were equivalent to a leper. You were an outcast or worse in that environment. That was major persecution for a Jew. And in case you think that's bad, Jesus says it's going to get even worse, guys. Verse 2, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. There's an intended irony, I think, there in that statement because that's exactly what they did to Jesus, right? The Sanhedrin, in the name of supposedly protecting God's interest, they killed and murdered Jesus illegally. But again, why are they ultimately persecuting God's people? Verse three, they will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. In other words, they have a spiritual problem. They have a vital the absence of a vital, intimate relationship with God. Verse 4, but I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. When this happens, says Jesus, you, you ought to remember that I told you so, so that you go in with your eyes wide open. Boy, that makes a difference, doesn't it? Who likes to be blindsided by things? How many of you enjoy going into a hostile situation and getting pummeled because you have no clue that it was coming? Had no... Uh, no Time to prepare. A curveball was thrown at you when you were expecting a, a fastball right down the middle, right? None of us like that. Jesus says, you can't say I didn't tell you so. I told you ahead of time so that you would not only expect it, but embrace it and engage in the spiritual warfare in the power of the Holy Spirit. Boy, his words are prophetic, aren't they? Later on, we see this come to fruition. Acts 12, James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. Acts 7, Stephen, one of the super deacons, stoned to death by a mob. What do we read about in church history? Guys like, guys like Polycarp and these early church fathers killed. Tradition, church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to, to, to die regularly the way that Jesus died. So he wanted to be crucified upside down according to church tradition. You've read church history about the Christians who suffered gruesome martyrdom for the sake of Christ. Some beheaded, sawn in two, says Hebrews chapter 11. Some burned at the stake because they would not deny Jesus. Jesus' words are so prophetic, aren't they? They came to fruition, brothers. During the Reformation, guys like John Huss 
Guys like John Wycliffe burned at the stake for what crime? For what crime in the case of John Wycliffe? Because he wanted to translate the Bible so that people could know God on their own and be able to interpret the Bible and have a relationship with God on their own because he believed in the priesthood of all believers under the new covenant. That's why they they killed him. See, opposition and persecution are part and parcel of our call as believers. I'll never forget how a former professor of mine migrated from China later on, but tells in his testimony of when he was a boy and how his older brother was literally beaten to death in front of him and his parents by the Chinese communist government because they were cracking down on believers at the time. And they told the parents to refuse to, to, to deny Jesus or they were going to beat their son to death right in front of them. And they did not deny Jesus. Can you believe that? And because of this, they took their brother out, his brother out, and beat him to death right in front of them. This is normal in other places of the world. You understand that? Places that we will never hear about. Stories that you won't hear until you get to heaven. And you'll be able to see some of our brethren who have been butchered for the sake of Christ in other places of the world. Read Voice of the Martyrs. Be informed so that you could be praying for our, the persecuted church, the underground church brothers. We live in a mostly free country, but that could very well change. And we might be there in the, in the future. Maybe our kids, maybe our grandkids will be there in the future. No more freedom in this country to be a, a follower of Jesus. This may be normalized in the future in our country, this level of opposition and persecution. We just don't know. Some of us may die in this lifetime or be incarcerated for our faith. We just don't know. Like some of our brethren in other countries who are dying in the present, we might be there too. We might be one of those in Hebrews chapter 11 being told of, should the Lord tarry in the future, who were persecuted for the sake of Christ, put to death. Others of us are currently or may simply in the future be treated with hatred, with hostility, let go of a job, treated with indifference, with disdain, right? Let go of a profession because we simply won't support certain agendas. Because that's the name of the game now, right? Not only do we want you to agree, but we want you to support and propagate the agendas that are anti-God and anti-Scripture. That's the name of the game now. But listen, whatever the case, our faithful shepherd, our wonderful counselor has said, embrace it, expect it, embrace it, and engage the world. This is why you are here, and I am with you. And so is the Holy Spirit. And so is my Father. Endure, persevere in the face of opposition and persecution. Just like the disciples in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Remember what they said? Acts 14, 22. Through, not around, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The only way they could say that, brothers, is by the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit. Amen? That's the only way that we can say the same thing. Let's pray. Father... Thank you for the gracious, wise, wonderful counselor who is our Lord Jesus, warning us, cautioning us for our own good and for his glory about the future and what was to happen. Not only for the disciples of his day, there were some unique aspects of his words to them, we understand. They were apostles. We're not apostles in the sake of that title, but we are apostles with a little a sent out into the world on mission. And so these principles apply to us. 
Father, help us to appropriate them to our lives. Help us to remember the, the amazing power that you've given us, a measure of your power by your grace, so that we would be able to stand firm against the, 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 the evil schemes of the devil in this world, and even our own flesh that fights against, Lord, our desire to be like Jesus. Help us to be salt and light in this world and to be on mission for the sake of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.